0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to the Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Oliver Jeffers. Oliver is the author and illustrator behind so many beloved children's books, including some of the mini Stacks favorites, like Here We Are and The Day the Crayons Quit. Oliver has just released his first picture book for readers of all ages, and it's called Begin Again, How We Got Here and Where We Might Go, Our Human Story, So Far. Using vibrant colors and poignant words, the book builds on Oliver's artistic exploration of humankind's impact on itself and on our planet since the dawn of our species. We talk today about how Begin Again is in conversation with Oliver's other work, what he hopes readers will keep in mind as they read Begin Again, and which parts of this book he is the most proud of. Remember our book club pick this month is Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, and we'll discuss the book on October 25th with Minda Honey. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. To all of my book lovers out there, are you looking for a community to share bookish hot takes, get recommendations, and discuss the books that have had an impact on your life? If so, you should check out The Stacks Pack on Patreon at patreon.com slash the stacks. For just $5 a month, you get to be a part of making this show possible, plus you get a space to talk about books with book nerds of all stripes on our Discord, and you get to join our monthly virtual book club meetups, and you get to hear exclusive bonus episodes, plus you get shout outs on this very show. Let me shout out some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Hawa Jalow, Kate Root, Mora, Elizabeth Alt, and Madeline Loesch. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not make the show without you. And if you're not in the Stacks Pack yet, you can head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. I promise you it is never too late to show your love for your favorite creators, including me and this podcast. Plus your new book besties are waiting to meet you. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Oliver Jeffers. All right, everybody. I am thrilled today to welcome a Stacks family favorite. I am joined today by children's book and now adults' book author, Oliver Jeffers. Oliver, welcome to the Stacks.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Happy to have you. So your new book is called Begin Again. And will you just tell folks in about 30 seconds or so what this book is about?
1: Uh, This book is, I think it's a a history and a trajectory of the stories that that guide humanity, kind of taking stock of where we are and then um, looking to where we might go and the stories that will help us get there.
0: So let me ask you. When So, you know, for my job, I get pitched books from publicists, and they're like, you know, so and so has a new book coming out, whatever. And I read through all the pitches and I decide who I want to have. And I saw they pitched your new book as an adult book by, you know, beloved children's book author Oliver Jeffers. And I fainted because I was like, not, not the what will build guy. I, I, it's too important. Um, but I'm wondering, how were you thinking about the book? Were you thinking about it for an adult audience? And if so, does that change how you approach the the work? Uh,
1: that, that is a good question. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Wh- whenever, I mean, this book, I think, is the manifestation of multiple lines of inquiry that i have been engaged in for, for a significant amount of time and really trying to make sense out of all these patterns that I recognize. Um, and when I began putting it on paper, it just sort of came out of a, of a, in a burst because I, I was making some connections that I needed to document. And at the start, I wasn't even sure if it was going to be a book. Or you know, or mm. was I maybe writing the beginning of a film, or was this going to be a series of large-scale paintings, or all three, or uh, possibly more? I, I didn't really know, um, but I think I you know if if I want this message or the ideas, uh, uh, or the the concepts in this book to reach as many people as possible, I think a a book is a, is about the best way to do that. So it began taking its shape in the form of a book because I, I I know. Mm. to do that um but you know the did it was a different process than the other books yes and no i mean and mostly no because it's not like when i'm making the picture books that i'm well known for that are mostly enjoyed by children it's not like i sit down and think here's a book for kids what's the way that i'm going to do this so that kids will like it most or or what what is it they want to hear i'm always just trying to i suppose communicate what it is that I'm thinking and feeling in as clear a way as possible, and really trying to satisfy my own sense of curiosity. So, and, and not really. The process was much the same, it was, it was just slightly longer and more complicated.
0: Interesting. Um, do you think of this book? I guess let me put it a different way. I think of this book as sort of a companion to some of your children's books for sure. Do you feel like? And I, and I say that because I feel like while this book is longer and more complicated, and if you take the essay out at the end, because that's obviously like some serious reading, it has a similar visual look, it has a similar feeling to it, a similar, you know, sort of writing style. Um, your prose feel very similar to where they feel like in the children's books. Is this something that you might imagine could maybe bridge the gap between your children, the children and the adults?
1: I'd say definitely so. You know, I don't really know who the target audience is for this. Um, I don't think it's kids necessarily. I don't think it's parents necessarily. Honestly, it could be and should be for everyone. I do just think that if people see my name at the top of a book and a picture book, they they might mistake it for a bedtime story, which it's not. I, I suppose the language which I'm using and the way in which I'm trying to simplify this was partly done so that I could engage people who feel disengaged regardless mm-hmm. of what age they are, what discipline mm-hmm. they're in, or geographically where they are. So there was, I did need that simplicity for that. But yeah, I do think that this could be an excellent uh, maybe launchpad for conversations with with families at home. But but equally, it's for people who feel disenfranchised or disconnected from a future they feel that they've got no control over, you know, whether that's could be anybody, like somebody who works in a toll booth or, or cleans hotel rooms or... Um, is unemployed or, or a, co- a college graduate unsure of their next steps? I, it's 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 really for for everyone and 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 anyone. I think.
0: Yeah. How do you think about audience? How much is your audience in your mind as you're writing and
1: creating? Uh, normally, not at all, um, because mm-hmm. I, 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 as I say, I am just trying to. You know, I think art is one of those the few industries where the more. Selfish, you are the more generous you are. Whereas, if you hmm. if you're pandering too much towards it, to what you think your imagined audience might want, you can. I, I wonder if you can end up with something that is that's uh, like a little prosaic and mm. tame. Whereas, if you really are just willing to let the public watch you go down a a, a rabbit warren of self questioning, self discovery, I think that lends to to work that actually ends up being a lot more accessible to people um Mm -hmm. so but with this one i it started off like that but then i kept reworking it and rereading it to people to to make sure that the points that i was trying to make were actually being received and then would finesse that and and maybe say it a different way or if something was being misconstrued come at it from a different angle so with this this one after i'd got the the guts of what it was that I was aiming to do. I definitely took into consideration audience a bit more than usual, just so it, I I knew the the it was as clear as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. In the essay at the end, you talk about, you know, when people tell stories, they're focusing too much on the teller and not the told, or the people that were telling the stories to. You. Does that inform how you create it all? Are you, is, is that at all a relationship that you think about when you're making your art, like, what you're trying to communicate to the people or like what you're trying to incite or excite? In,
1: in, in, a, in a way, previously, no, for the reasons that I kind of pointed out there yeah. that it's like, I just, I'm just going to do this thing that I feel like a, a gut compulsion to, to make. And then it is what it is. People can take it or leave it or, or however they feel about it. Um, But yeah, in that, but that's about the specific things that I make. Whereas how I deal with life, I think, is the what that point is uh, a little more directly speaking of is, you know, I think the world is made up of stories. Everybody is a collection of stories. The the ones that they are told, which is explains, you know, how somebody frames their context in uh, relation to their existence. Uh, the stories that are told about them, so their reputation or whatever that might be, and then the stories that they tell, both to other people and ultimately to themselves. So we, you know, in in questioning the the motivation of some of these stories, I think, is where I'm going with that, where, uh, you know, in in the age of a very short attention span, people don't apply empathy all that often, as much as would benefit society. Um, And often we're so trying, we're so busy trying to be, understood ourselves that we forget to try and understand and to, to give an example of that it was like I, I I've said this a few times to different people and I've talked them through it where I don't think I've ever met anybody who wanted to be disliked and there's a lot of people who are just a bull and you know invariably when I say this people are like well well obviously you haven't met so and so and so and I was like well you know <laughs> but let's let's take that apart you know when did you meet this person what was going on in their frame of mind that day uh what 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 are the reasons that they are the way they are, you know, we're not fully aware of the, the full picture of maybe they have been abused their whole life or, or maybe they, something awful just happened and you don't have the full context and, and people just are reacting in, in ways that are dislikable. But ultimately I think, you know, whenever there are clashes of personality and somebody comes across as likable, it's, it's it, often, I think it can come down to a mistranslation of story that then somebody feels a compulsion to defend in an aggressive way.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like one of the things that I picked up all, a lot in this book, and I think you sort of say it in that last essay, is like you have a pretty extreme sense of optimism, I feel. I feel like you are searching for the good in people and and positive I have a positive outlook on what is possible and who we are and what we can be and and maybe what we should or will be and i 'm wondering if that 's something that is innate in you. Have you always been that guy, or is that something you cultivate, and if it is something you cultivate how
1: well i think I, I think I am a nearly like that. Um, my mother was ill my whole life she had m s and she passed away when I was was twenty. but whenever we asked her how she was, she would answer genuinely a grit even though she was bedridden. And it's, she wasn't lying because she would, she just re measured her priorities and, and uh, what it was that she wanted. And, and, you know, any, any day, frankly, she saw the sunrise again and got to see her four boys. That was a good thing. That was, that was good. And so I think I've, I've been brought up with that optimism and maybe why the optimism started to come through in my work was whenever my son and then my daughter was born and, a lot of the things that I felt strongly about in the world, I started speaking more publicly about, but I didn't want to just add to the to the noise and the anger. And so I thought, right, okay, you know, uh, uh, I suppose I forced optimism on myself at that point. But the more I did it, the more I realized, like, actually, there, you know, this is not ill-founded. And in questioning it even further, I was like, well, why does, it, why does it really feel that everything is unraveling so much and everything is falling apart? And is it that things are really getting worse? Or is it that we're actually now just aware of, all of the problems that have always been, but we just can see them all at the same time instantaneously everywhere to the point that we forget the things that have gone well because bad news is sensational and, and is more marketable and happens very quickly, but good news happens slowly and over a longer period of time, so is is less marketable. But when you examine where we are versus, uh, you know, not as individuals, but as as, as a society or as, as a species, we, even compared to 100 years ago, we are so much better off, you know the we have um, um, cures for so many more diseases than we did hundred years ago uh, there's a lot less war than there was hundred years ago there 's a lot more equality than there was hundred years ago, even take what i do uh, picture books didn 't exist a century ago for kids because kids didn 't live predictably long enough to warrant having their own books yeah. so these are they, you know whenever we we take a step back and look at things from a from a great distance and perspective. We can't say that what individually, yes, there's a lot that's still going wrong. There's a lot of people who suffer trauma and turmoil and and abuse in their life, but overall, we—it's easy to dismiss the progress we as a species have made and will continue to make.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big theses of the book, or maybe the thesis, at least how I read it, was that with distance comes perspective, and I feel like you know how do we balance distance with feeling of urgency, like that ex- ignites the action that you sort of, you know, that you're sort of calling for yeah. in this book. How do we balance like pulling back and seeing the whole picture, but also still getting riled up enough to like want
1: to make change? Well, right. And, but I, I wonder if, you know, for, for a lot of what I'm doing, it's not necessarily looking out at all the problems, but it's looking in at your own motivation. Mm. So I actually think the, the biggest thesis of the book is... Is an internal model of that you have yourself, and, and and changing the way that you tell your own story to one that's mm. frankly more productive to your existence, rather than just it's all falling apart and there's nothing I can do. It it could well, it, and you know, it could well go from what's in it for me to how can I help, and you know, that's a small step that feels much more manageable than how can I save mm-hmm. the world, you know. So yeah, it's, I think it's the, the idea of changing. The story that we tell ourselves, so it's less about me as an individual, more about us as as a as a, a collaborative species. I think is is a good place to start, and you know, moving away from the ego of being right rather than wrong, and and trying to switch your motivation to being better rather than worse. You know, the, yeah. I think those are some of the some of the big things, and I use distance as a perspective to show some of those things. But I, I you know, I don't know how. Helpful that would be for everybody to do that from the, from the idea of like, yeah, we're a tiny speck in the middle of a vast right. cathedral of nothingness. That's, that's overwhelming right. for some people.
0: Yeah, it's overwhelming for me, I think. I think thinking about space yeah. and also thinking about the ocean are two of the most overwhelming, stressful things right. for me. The, the two great unknowns
1: <laughs> and yeah. what can I do about it? But, you know, leading on from that, I, I think that we're at the tail end of this idea of the individual being all important you know Mm -hmm. where it's all about you as a person where you are playing the the starring role in the film of your life and of course whenever that's been the construct that there that has been for the guts of the last century then when pitted against the really existential problem you feel me as an individual which you've been taught to your whole life you feel worthless and meaningless and and you can't do anything about it but if we can revert back to the the idea of it's actually, we're a community-based species and changing the way you think about that on a much smaller scale, I think we'll have, we'll have much more massive ramifications than, than anything else.
0: Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you a little bit about community because I think a part of the book, um, and you know, you're from Northern Ireland and you talk about that in the essay and, and when you were growing up, you know, the troubles were going on and it was a very contentious time and, and you know, that's just one set of conflict that was happening in the world at that time and what's happening now and all of that. Um, But I'm wondering, you know, if we're thinking about us as a we and, and a collective and a community and not us versus them, is there a way to really move forward, do you think? And obviously, I know you don't have the answer, but these are the thoughts that came up for me. Is there a way to move forward without parsing what's happened in the past, without sort of Hashing out who was right and who was wrong before we can get to the better it's, or worse. You know, the,
1: yeah, these are these are questions for for much, I think, bigger brains of mine or the philosophy. But you know, <laughs> it's it's an interesting one where I, I i started to recognize that Northern Ireland kind of is a bit of a microcosm for the for the world, um, and it's it's possibly easier to measure and manage. But the, there there is a there's a very real, very delicate debate that's happening and. With, say, for example, take Northern Ireland, there was there was a report done about justice for crimes that were committed during the troubles that that never went being marked in any way. And there's this call for justice to be done, and that is a very real that's a very real call that these families whose family members or children or parents were murdered and disappeared. To have no closure of that is right. is wildly painful, but as somebody asked at the time, and it's 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 very delicate, can there be a differentiation between justice and closure because justice means punishment, which means that somebody is right and somebody is wrong, and by that logic it the wronged it keeps the wound alive that we carry with us, whereas closure might be what are the, what is necessary, what is needed here? to be able to close this chapter, to, to fill this void so that the, the entire country can move forward. Mm-hmm. So it's a very frightening question to put it in terms of should the hurt of one family be sacrificed for the betterment of the entire country? You know, these, the, these are very, very delicate issues.
0: Well, so one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast because it's something that I'm super interested in and actually I think... I felt like it was in your book, but I'm not sure if it was intentional or just, you know, some of the stuff that you're thinking about and just hearing your answer is all of this sounds a lot like prison and police abolition language and discourse, Mm -hmm. right? This idea of it's not about punishment. And, you know, I don't know that justice necessarily means punishment. I think the way we've interpreted it now, that's what it means. But I do think that there's like a call for punishment when perhaps there's something different, which I think you're referring to as closure, is is maybe called for, right? And like, mm. and you know, I, I don't know, I, obviously not my family, but I'm a black American. So there's a lot of past racial history in this country that, you know, I still think about and we also think about and deal with here. And I think like- Absolutely. This, yeah, this call for closure and the, you know, here it look, sort of looked like reparations. It's like, nobody's in trouble. Right. Nobody's being punished for this.
1: Right, black right, people right, right. will
0: play reparations too. But this idea that we can move forward- Without some accountability or some communal calling to account, I think is
1: tricky. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's very, very tricky, and I think the accountability is is absolutely right. And you can probably look historically at places that have done it in different ways than others, like Germany after World War right. II, the or way South they handled Africa. that as a, as, a, as a, yeah, yeah versus you know uh, Britain right now with their their post colonial kind of existence could probably be handling that better or America, um, but it's, yeah, well, I was us, getting us there, too. but, um, but you know, if, if, uh, if, if we're looking at, you know, you, you sort of said about the, but the, the, prison system here where it's about punishment and closure. It's like, I wonder if that's actually not the bottom of that, the, that debate if it, if it goes much deeper is that let's look at why so many people are being incarcerated in the first place. Yes. And, and deal with those issues before we deal with the ones that are stacked on top of it. Right. Um, so I, I think there's an awful, awful lot of work to be done about questioning the motivations of how we act yeah. as, 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 a, as a species. Right. And, you know, they, we, we start to see this, this idea of, of separation and, and even, to, again, to, to wading into delegate territory, but to using Northern Ireland as an example, where the Protestant people for the, the, most of the country's existence were the majority. Mm -hmm. and then the Catholics behaving like Catholics, quite literally having more children, they uh, are no longer a majority, and so now not wanting to be the bottom rung of the ladder, they are lashing out at all other sorts of minorities simply because they don't want to prove they're the bottom, but that's because the conversation is framed around this network of us versus them and that we are different, whereas there's much deeper issues that need to be addressed before we can start to address those issues of of closure i once joked when somebody asked me in a in a panel in northern ireland what's what's the solution to the northern irish problem and just off the top of my head i said maybe it's collective amnesia <laughs> and you know if we just were able to sort of wave everybody's long term memory would that be a good thing like how would we restructure everything mm. w- without the pain of the past
0: yeah i mean that's tricky too i mean i guess if everybody forgot everything maybe you could <laughs> I guess. (laughs) And I suppose
1: I'm just posing these questions that often the issues aren't the ones that are seemingly obvious and apparent on the surface. It does require going a little deeper and a little deeper and to looking at the motivation. And there's a poem at the end of the book that is called The Heart of It. And it says, by asking the why behind the why enough times, you get to a truth at the heart of it. And I do think that people stop asking why too soon.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I think... Another thing that you say in the book that again reminded me a lot of like the abolitionist uh, writers that I read is you talk about this in the essay, like, what is the world that people want? And one of the things that you say is when when you ask that question, people respond with things they don't want. They're like, I don't want this, I don't want that. But they don't necessarily say clearly what it is that they actually do want, affirmatively design Mm. this world for themselves. Do you see a world for yourself? clearly that you want what are the things that you oliver jeffers hope for
1: well i think my i see a trajectory for myself along these planes and and uh of putting these questions forth but you know to be very simplistic about it i guess i want to leave the use to use an old camping uh models like to leave it better than i found it but to make beautiful things and have fun while i'm here and and uh, the, the, the closure of that poem at the, at the start of the book is uh, I think what all people want is it is a den, a packed position, and direction. Another way of saying that is that everybody wants safety, mm-hmm. everybody wants dignity, mm-hmm. community, and purpose, and th- those things shouldn 't be that hard to accomplish. For everyone, it's if we can just get out of our own way. And actually, speaking of, of abolitionists there, um, Belfast just two weeks ago uh, erected a statue to Frederick Douglass mm. um, because he, he he went there to, uh, I suppose, hone his public speaking skills to, to come back to the USA to uh, to continue his fight there. So I think that was, that was a very cool thing that that, that, that statue's gone up.
0: That's very cool. I have to tell you when I found out that you were from Northern Ireland, I'm sure I did what like every American probably does to, you, but I thought, wow, two of my favorite artists, you and Van Morrison, are northern are from Northern Ireland.
1: This You're not going to believe this, but I see him fairly regularly. Um, oh my. God. Not, I, I, he goes to the same cafe that I go to at the bottom of my street. Oh my god. Do you
0: love you him? Wouldn't recognize Do you love his him?
1: music? <laughs> I I think he went a little off the deep end yeah. recently. I mean, the old but, stuff. Uh, I, I think, <laughs> yeah. But Astro, Astro Weeks is probably my favorite uh. album of all time. A, lo- a lot of people don't know this, but Astro Weeks the whole the whole album is based in Belfast, like Cypress Avenue. That's a street in East Belfast. Like all of the songs are about there.
0: Oh yes, uh, I love it. Do you do you have to love him if you're from Northern Ireland? Is that like a thing? Like I'm from California and like I live in. No. LA. You have to love Kendrick Lamar, kind of thing, you know?
1: No, you know it's uh, it's definitely. I think he's sort of beyond this, but like the tallest poppy syndrome, where you get too big for your station. And, and Fano definitely suffers that in the south of Ireland. But, but I think Van Morrison is, he's so revered, but then when it's so off the deep end, there's, there's kind of an unwritten rule. I was like, nobody bothers him. Got it. He's a grumpy old man and nobody bothers him. Yeah. And he sort of just gives him his, his distance.
0: Yeah. Astral Weeks is. A phenomenal album. Uh, my my wedding song is Into the Mystic, which I'm sure like everyone's wedding song, but oh, I just, yeah. I love him. And Sweet Thing. Uh, I just love Van Morrison so much. So I was thrilled to find out that you are also from Northern Ireland because maybe there's something in the water there where all the great artists are from there. I don't know, maybe. Or just my favorite artist.
1: I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Um, sweet. We definitely punch above our wit there.
0: Yeah. I love this. I love this for all of us. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back, and I want to just quickly ask you about the title of the book you mentioned, collective amnesia. And I'm wondering if that's sort of what what you were thinking with the title, begin again, or how you were thinking about it.
1: You know, the well, the title. It it I suppose it is. It's it's basic compositional uh, language because um, if you if you know that you're heading in the wrong direction, what, what do you do? Uh, I I don't really know what else I could have called it mm. but I was thinking about this that, that watching my wife the way she's a just a brilliant natural mother and and kind of watching how she she interacts with her kids I noticed that and i able to apply this to various conflicts of the world over the surest way to get somebody to change their mind is not by telling them that they're wrong mm. and actually the best way to do it is to just simply tell a more engaging story so in you know, in some ways like that that there doesn't need to be resolution to, to some things. People just get more interested in something else and they literally just switch lanes. Mm. I watch it with my kids all the time and you watch it happen with adults. And in a strange way, that's kind of exactly what Trump did in 2016, by he united a, a, a very disparate group of people by telling them all a story that was more interesting than the one they were hearing, and that it included them.
0: Yeah. And
1: so there wasn't necessarily resolution, there was just, oh, this is more interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's if, but that that story happened to be about anger and hate and blame, and I I believe it's possible that the same trick can be done with a story that's about hope and uh, inclusion.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you ever heard of Barack Obama, but uh, his whole oh, yeah, his whole retelling of the yeah. story it was similar. I mean, he had a hope and yeah. change message that included a lot of people yeah. that had felt left out too. But I, I I
1: yeah, but I do wonder if if it showed. Do you know, just like how deep the roots of racism ran mm-hmm. here, that yeah. that a lot of people couldn't win themselves over to that message simply because it was coming from the body that that brain inhabits, which yeah. is it's wildly, you know, wildly tragic and unfortunate. But I guess you cannot deal with a force that you can't see.
0: Yeah, but I think on the flip side, I think that you know, with Barack Obama's campaign, what we saw were like so many people who had felt left out, who hadn't had the message you know, for them who registered to vote for the first time and like all of those things. And I think, you know, and just like with your example of Trump, he told a more interesting story to a certain group of people, just like Obama Mm -hmm. told a more interesting story to a different group of people. But I think like that's the thing about politics is that it gets really divisive and it does become so much us versus them, you know, and it's tricky to find the story that includes everyone, I guess, or like includes enough people to feel transformative.
1: I think especially when it comes from a structure that's designed to to be yeah um, you know almost like self-defensive where uh you you know you you ask any politician what their single biggest uh, objective is when getting elected and normally it's to get reelected yeah. uh is so it's and they'll do whatever it takes to do that and you know there's, there's some societies like in, in in Sweden I think in Norway they're they're, they're talking about uh no longer having career politicians, but more like elaborate jury duty where people are lifted out and asked to govern. And, and, and I guess, you know, then decisions are made that aren't about getting reelected or power, but about right. what's, what actually society needs.
0: Mm. Gosh, that's such an interesting idea, experiment process. Cause yeah. yeah.
1: You know, and, and I think that there's a, there's a book that I I read a lot that I, I based an art show on and it's definitely coming into my my thinking an awful lot with with this project and it, it was written in the 1960s and it's called the operating manual for spaceship earth by buckminster fuller and you know in any sort of there's two two points that i kept going back to and one of them is the the main one i guess is that he puts forward the idea that if we treated our planet as a mechanical vehicle
0: oh yes which in many ways it is
1: because it's the spaceship on space through which we're all passengers we would treat it very differently than we actually do you know it's like if you're a car owner and you have a flat tire you know you need to pump it up If you've run out of gas you need to refill so on and so forth but we're not treating our our spaceship that way but the other one that i think is is really interesting is on page one of the book he says if you're in a shipwreck and a piano comes along it would make an excellent flotation device but that's not to say the best way to design a flotation device (laughs) is to make it look like a piano but that's what we as as a society have done all too often. Just because it worked once doesn't mean that's the best way to do it.
0: Right, right. And you have that moment in the book that I, I guess I'm obviously assuming is coming from this thinking is the moment where it's like if we all thought of ourselves as the crew of the ship instead of passengers, we would treat it differently.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 And the, the the astronaut Nicole Stott says that an awful lot. And um, I had the the pleasure of doing an event with her once. And, you know, she's been up to the International Space Station and has been one of the people who's experienced the overview. And it is, it's such a simple way to think about it. Like if you're on a, say a cruise ship, you expect everybody to do everything for you. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're on a two-person rowboat and you're stuck in the (laughs) sea, it's like you're expected to pitch in. It's a very different attitude. Yeah. And can can we collectively go from one to the other?
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your process. Um, First with this book, you know, I've read it it now three times. And as I was reading it, I was, you know, the first time I sort of was reading the words and looking at the pictures. And then the second time I was really focusing on the words. And then the third time I was looking a lot at the pictures. And I'm wondering, or the illustrations, I'm wondering how you approach something like this? Do you write out the full text and like, as like a poem or a piece of prose and then illustrate from there? Are there images that are coming into your head that you have to get down and you try to kind of find the right words for them? Is it a mix? Is it neither?
1: It's, it's a little bit of both. And, and each book is slightly different, you know. So like a lot of my early books, it's definitely, I understand the feeling that I want to convey or the the, the mm-hmm. gut, you know, if you picture a story in your, your mind, the it's, comes to you in both pictures and words, but they're sort of in discernible from each other. And then how do you get that out? It's a, it's a little bit of both. So some of the books have been like that. Um here we are started as a letter to my son. So it was written in its entirety okay. before I thought to put pictures to it. I love and, that book. So uh, much. what will build <laughs> uh, thank you. And what will build was written as a as a poem to my daughter. So it was also written in its entirety before mm. I put pictures to it. And with with this one it was a little bit of both where it was mostly written. Mm-hmm. Then once I started putting the, the images in, I was able to say, well, what can I take out What that's being said or shown more powerfully in the images? So it's letting the image do the work rather than just as a, an added on decoration.
0: That makes sense. As I mentioned, Here We Are and What We're Build are two of our family's like most favorite books. Can I just ask you like a really inside baseball about What We'll Build? Is that Pig, is that your daughter's lovey?
1: yeah she's a little stuff big, and it sort of got it, it became personified to to a degree it sort of like became a character yeah um and she's moved on. she's got a new favorite one now okay. uh, which which makes me sad, but you know it's hey, it's her life yeah yeah <laughs> uh, uh. yeah the and the fox in that I kind of realized. After I'd made the art, is I think actually the the representation of my mother, who my daughter is named after. Because uh, I was as when I was making that the the spread where the fox first appears, it wasn't it wasn't in the sketches. I just sort of intuitively drew it in and then kept it in. And I, I noticed that I was listening to my mum's old favorite music at the time, and it was only when I was done I realized like, wait a minute, that's I just put my mother in this book and sort of subconsciously. But yeah, from here we are, and then which is about uh, the you know the just the, the simple joy and pleasures and beauty of what it is to be alive on Earth in the 21st century, and to the fate of Fausto, which very much questions the the structure of growth and greed that we reward, through to what we'll build, which is about the power of recognising that the future is yet to be written and Mm -hmm. doing that together. And then with uh, Meanwhile Back on Earth, which is about Viewing problems from a great perspective, from a great distance, I think it's this, this combination of all of these things has led up to, to begin again.
0: Yeah, I love that. I just, I love that. I love the books. One of the things that I really appreciate about it as a parent, and I'm sure you've read the books with other children through the course of your travels and things, but I get so excited because when my kids are reading your books, they're always stopping and asking questions and being like, mommy, look, it's a this or that. And it just feels like, and I get a lot out of them. And I think with a lot of children's books, they're very clearly written for kids or they're very clearly written for adults, which I really hate when there's like, you know, it's like these yeah. books are for adults. They're like, yeah. okay, no five-year-old cares about this. But your books, like there's so much to look at visually that's so exciting and so stimulating. And also the words are so beautiful. I mean, Here We Are was a gift that I got from my bridal shower from my – um my aunt and uncle, and our first copy, my kids as babies, we read it so many times and loved it, and by as they got older in that destructive stage, they ripped it to pieces. And so when your publisher sent me, Begin Again, they actually sent me a replacement copy because we had like oh, literally worn the book yeah. to death, like all the pages were out, the sea the page was just like half of it, they could only see the diver side, they couldn't see the iceberg side, it just was like we need, and when we got it back and read it again like a few weeks ago, it was It's back on the table every day we no, read it. Just love, love, love. That's fantastic. Um, how do you like to write? How do you like to draw? How many hours a day? How often? Where are you? Do you listen to music, snacks or beverages? What's your creative process oh, like? None of that is
1: predictable. It's. <laughs> I think you just got to recognize when it's on and forgive yourself when it's not. Some days, nothing good is coming out at the end of your pencil or out of your head and you just... you. you by hammering away at things you, you often tend to make them worse i think it's it's important to recognize days like that go go see your dad or go for a walk just don't have too many days like that but then equally on the other side there's some days where you get a month's worth of work done and it's having i suppose that forgiving enough family and the discipline to just stay and and work with it while it's there mm. so i i tend to do some of the, the better creative thinking when it's either late at night or I'm on an airplane or, or taking a walk when there's less distraction. And I think, you, you know, I have to jot things down in a, in a notebook uh, and force out some time to, to bring a few things together. But it's, yeah, I think it's just recognizing your own momentum yeah. and getting out of your own way.
0: And when you do feel stuck, if if it is a few days in a row, you know, you go on a walk, you do these things and you realize it's been a week or two, is there something that you do to tap into creativity? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I just move on to a different problem because um, I've normally got uh, several projects on it to go. So if one thing is not happening, I don't try and hammer it to death. I'll just move on to the next project. And then often the solution or some uh, point of entry will will present itself when you're not really thinking about it yeah, or when some other thing happens that you connect subconsciously to, to that. So yeah, you just move on to something else.
0: Yeah. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer or a
1: visual artist or? I always knew I wanted to be an artist. Yeah. I always wanted to be a painter. I thought I was going to be a, a painter before it occurred to me to make books. Um, once I learned that that was an actual job, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's for me. Yeah. And I never really looked back.
0: And is the handwriting in the books? Is that your actual handwriting, or is that like a like a drawing version of your handwriting?
1: No, that's my actual handwriting. Um, I mean, if I'm writing something really quickly, like scribbling it note to myself really quickly, I'll, I'll tend to use cursive a little more just for speed. Mm-hmm. But the uh, I, I work with a lot of different materials, you know, oil paints and colored pencils and collage and uh, and all sorts. And uh, in Brooklyn, New York space is a premium so i need to i have more st- i, I would i could do with a studio three times larger so everything is <laughs> you know has its has its place and i need to know where things are because i t- when i work i tend to work urgently and quickly and and so i took to you know years and years and years ago labeling drawers and labeling mm-hmm. things and and it, it is my handwriting but i just when i take a little more care i sort of rec- i i enjoyed how it looked and and i can Turn the volume up on it a little bit, but it's by and large, that's how I write.
0: I love that. And where are you? Are you in Brooklyn now? I, I, I was trying to figure I'm out where Brooklyn, you lived, yeah. but it said a lot of different options uh, on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I'm, in, I'm in Brooklyn right now. Um, we we decided that we would travel around the world with our then one year old and four year old mm. uh, before they started school. And we got We rented our apartment out in Brooklyn and and we got caught on the other side of the world when the pandemic hit with nowhere to go. So we ended up going back to Northern Ireland and uh, my my dad then got sick. And so we decided we would hang around there for a bit. But now that my kids are in school there and we're sort of relishing the, the, the benefit of having a lot of family around and open space. So my main studio is still in Brooklyn. So I pop back and forth a little bit, my wife a little less frequently, and then the kids a couple of times a year. Got it, so, Got it. Yeah. Okay,
0: so that's why I couldn't get a clear answer because it's, it's a lot of yeah. answers in one. Okay, I feel better about my yeah. research skills. <laughs> um, is there anything that's not in this book that you wish could be?
1: No, because um, I think there's enough. Okay. It's because otherwise it runs the risk of overcomplicating. And, and I'm actually in the process now of preparing a talk to give when I'm on tour with this book, and um, you know, sort of recognizing the strands, the points of uh, the, as you say, like the, the the thesis of it, and there's there's a few, and they weave in and out of each other, and so the talk that I'm trying to give is more, I, I suppose, it's closer to the essay at the back. It's about the things the book is about rather than the actual book. But you know, the the distance comes perspective, the power of community, the power of storytelling. And sort of recognizing that we have all been convinced we're victims and are acting defensively as a result of that. You know, these all of these themes and threads—they're enough. I think if I were to throw any more in here, it would just (laughs) be—you know—they might might all cram at the door and nothing would get through.
0: Yeah. Were there any parts of this book that stick out to you as being particularly easy or particularly difficult?
1: Easy and difficult is not—it's the is not the right answers. I think there's there's bits that are more profound than others because it's just you know when it's in the flow it's in the flow Mm -hmm. um and it's easier to talk abstractly about the feeling of something than spelling it out which is why i'm Mm -hmm. having a harder time with the talk than with the actual book yeah you know it's like the (laughs) uh, may may honestly said that nobody remembers what you say they just remember how they make you feel and so it is it's that idea of a feeling but you know i think of the spreads two of the ones that are more important for right now, I, I, the, the very obvious one at the end is that we need to tell better stories and, mm-hmm. and a bigger one that that includes everybody, um, which is a doable task, I think. Um, but the, the other ones I think that, that need to happen before that can work is the, the spread where it's, um, you know, after hearing a good joke or a good story, well, the first thing we think to do is, who can we tell? Is mm-hmm. it recognizing that actually what we really want is each other? Coupled with... Why we may not be cogs in the machine designed to be replaceable parts, we are trees in the forest, no one more important than any other, and I think that sort of flies in the face of of, of liberalism in a lot of ways where it is as like you as an individual are, are all important, and everybody matters and without i haven't said it this way because it sounds sort of harsh and heartless the what I'm sort of trying to say is like everybody wants to matter, but in 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 a sort of a weird dark way, nobody actually really matters it's the, the collective, it's it's the the, the, the amount of us and, and the, the forest of us that is actually yeah. what matters. And if we can kind of use that as, as a base understanding, I think it makes the telling of a better story all the more simple.
0: Yeah. One of the images that really sticks out to me is the one where we're all kings of our own castle. And, and then there's like the recording device and he's sitting on the pile of the junk. I found that one to mm-hmm. be really, just really resonant of like what it feels like to be on right. social media or like a person yeah. alive right now.
1: Yeah, this edited reality of of uh, of who you are. And, and, you know, I think there's there's a lack of ability and willingness for people to talk about mental health that's changing more so here than, than in, in the UK or in Northern Ireland. Um, but it's the, you know, when we were saying earlier, it's like, when you ask somebody what they want, they tend to answer what they don't want. But also sometimes when, uh, if they don't do that, they'll, they'll answer with a bunch of stuff mm. like money or power or whatever. But I think, you know, again, if you go to applying the, the ask the next, why it was like, why, you know, what is, what is money? It's, it's leverage. What do you want that leverage for? What do you want right. this stuff for? Right. And, right. and I think it's, 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 the slow chipping away of just the, the recognition that we we just we all just want to be loved.
0: Yeah. Do you have any favorite image in the book? It doesn't have to be the most profound, but just an image that you're like, I nailed that. <laughs> Oliver at his uh, best.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Well, too the I think the fire at the start because I really loved how the, the the ink overlay works with the neon color. It took a lot of experimenting for that. Yeah. That yeah. one and i think the the one where it's the the pier, where it's like the you know the, the that's how it's always been the slow passing of stories to and for each other and stories that give us an idea of where we fit in the long line of time in a safe harbor because it was it was a very technically tricky image to make especially when mixing in those the, the neon colors this yeah one. it's that one yeah yeah i'm 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 pretty happy with how that one turned out
0: i love this one um Okay. This is so important. What is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? And because you're an artist, what is the thing that you can't draw? And you can't say hands Uh, because you are Mr. Hands. You're like the only artist uh, I ever knew who was like, I just draw tons of hands.
1: Can't spell dyslexia. Oh, Which I think, you know, why'd they make that such a hard word? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Feels feels a little mean. um, uh, bicycles. I have a very hard time drawing bicycles.
0: Mm, interesting. You, you start and you're like,
1: wait, where, where does the, what's the engineering here?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a terrible speller and also I'm a terrible draw, drawer, Drawer. Um, and I don't have that many artists on the show because this is a show a lot, a lot about books. But um, I know from people who draw that hands is always is like a very common answer to that. And so I found it funny when I was thinking about writing all my questions. I'm reading the book and I'm like, well, I, he better not say hands because he does it all the time. Like in What Will no, Build, lo- there's the hands. hands <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, again, you know, it's like if you look at a lot of the, the hands are just a scribble. It's a gesture and your brain sort of fills in. It's like yeah, mm. it, it knows how it wants to be felt. Yeah. Um, so it's just yeah, there's a, some, some simplistic gesture about it that just does the, the emotional job of storytelling.
0: Yeah. I know that you mentioned the talk. And I know that as we're speaking now, the book is not out. But as people are listening, it is out. You can go get it.
1: Do you know what comes next for you? Um, I do. I am trying to take uh, – there's there's a few – Developments ripples outwards from this project, where I am starting to experiment with taking some of these concepts as larger paintings, but then also some of the talking points and, and how they might, uh, how they might be represented on on stage uh, while live drawing. So I'm starting to play with some ideas cool. like that.
0: I love that. Yeah. Can people
1: buy your art? Yeah, they can. There's there's not an awful lot of it out there because I, I you know I have one foot in the fine art world and one foot in the publishing world, but I have, I have a gallery that's based out of Boston where I have a show every few years and, and yeah, they, cool. it's, it's called Praise Shadows.
0: Praise Shadows. Okay. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, for people who love Begin Again, what are some other books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation with what you've made?
1: There's a lot of history books like the, um, you know, Guns, Germs and Steel, the People's History of the United States, uh, Sapiens for Yuval Noah Harari. uh, the Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth that I, that I mentioned. Uh, there's some ones like that. Um, and th- there's another quite abstract one, The Big I Am by Ralph Steadman, which is sort of a graphic collection of paintings that's this, you know, uh, uh, he's just reminiscing on the, the, the idea of existence at all. Mm. Um, I'll have a think. There's probably some more that have come in, and, come in and one, out, yeah. one eye and out the other.
0: Yeah. Um, what do you hope people will keep in mind as they read Begin Again?
1: I guess what I hope that people keep in mind is just to check their own motivation and to, to apply more empathy. There's, there's an old Zen mantra that says, be gentle with everyone for we all carry a great weight. Nobody sets out to be an asshole. And mm-hmm. often it's just stories that are misconstrued. Be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others and tell yourself a better story. One that is leading towards a productive outcome rather than an aggressive defensive one.
0: I love that. Okay, last question. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um,
0: Carl Sagan. Okay, great. Um, That's it. You nailed it. Um, Everybody, you can get Begin Again wherever you get your books. It is out in the world. I highly encourage that you do. Also, if you've never read Oliver Jeffers' other children's books, get them for the people in your life who are parents or not or children or not. They're so, so good. All the books are beautiful. Add to your collection. My fave. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Oliver Jeffers for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Shauna Newland for coordinating this episode. Remember, our book club pick for October is Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, which we will discuss on October 25th with guest Minda Honey. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And of course, you can check out our website at thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tegirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.